So, as we continue our our study in Genesis, we're going to be in chapter 12 today. So get your Bibles open. We're going to talk about the calling of a man we know, Abraham. And I'm going to use that name, even though for the first few chapters, his name is Abram. God will change his name to Abraham later, uh, but we, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but Abraham is a foundational prophet uh, for Christians, Jews, and Muslims. And we'll ex- kind of explain why as as we go on through this. But Abraham is the one that God calls to really open the door to the story of Jesus coming onto the scene. Because after we, we, we had Adam, Adam was told to populate the earth. The earth was full of sin. God judged the earth. Then after the flood, God told Noah and his three boys that they should populate the earth. And by five or six generations away from Noah, they are totally corrupt again. And by this time, a man named Abram is living. Abram is 75 years old. He lives in a city called Ur. You are. All right, the city was totally excavated by uh, Leonard Woolsey back in the by uh, back in the 20s and 30s and um we found incredible things there which we'll talk about in a second. Um but Abraham is living in a in the modern New York City, Chicago, Tokyo uh of his day. Uh Ur sets right in the middle of the Tigris Euphrates Valley. It's in modern day Iraq. Um it's uh it's very historic the whole the whole area and it's where Abram is but Abram at this point in his life is like everybody else he's an idol worshiper he's worshiping the stars the moon he's worshiping um uh, crafted idols bulls cows other things like that and one night God shows up in a vision and speaks to Abraham and that's what we're going to take a look at today. But one thing I want to say and show you first is I was reading this quote again this week, and I love it, that throughout all of archaeological history, we have found obviously hundreds of millions of things. Not one thing has ever been found that contradicts one word of the Bible. Now, have we proved every word of the Bible? Not yet. But every time we find something, it proves Just a little bit more. Here's a big piece. You ready for this? This is Abraham's house. 4,000 years old. That's his house in Ur. If you were in the military, a lot of my friends who were in the first and second Gulf War, when they had days off and they were allowed to go somewhere, they would go. They go, you got to go see Abraham's house. And, you know, they would say, Abraham who? No, no, no. Abraham. It, it messes with your head to think it's still there. But it's important to see this was a wealthy man. And yes, we know it was his house. This is crazy stuff that God has preserved this. And so the question we're going to ask today is why did God pick Abram? That's the question. So if you'll stand out of respect for God's word, we shall roll through this. The Lord had said to Abram, <clears throat> this is the vision, all right? He's worshiping moon, the stars. God speaks to him, shows up and says, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. Something to think about politically today. 
And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran, which is in Syria. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Israel. And they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem, close to Jerusalem. At that time, the Canaanites were everywhere in Israel. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the east to Bethel, pitched his tent at Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. Not the moon, not the stars, not the pagan gods. He called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward Negev, which is the desert in southern Israel. So you can be seated. All right. So why did God, out of all the people that are living on the earth, and they're, they're all not following God. None of them are following true God. Even after Adam's story, even after Noah's story, you would think that story would have passed down from generation to generation. But think about in our own society today. Even with the resurrection of Jesus, we live in a what's called a post-Christian world. Where most people in our society don't know the stories of the Bible. They don't know the Bible. A lot of people don't even know the story of Jesus. They don't have any idea what Easter is about. They don't have any idea about the resurrection. So we live in that world, and that's where it was during the time of Abram. And God reveals himself and says, I got a plan. Now I'm going to tell you why I think God picked Abram. Because Abram was a nobody. God could have picked the Pharaoh of Egypt. He could have picked the king of Assyria. He could have picked the king of Babylon. He could have picked the queen of Ethiopia. He could have picked any number of people, but he chose a man who was nothing. He was just a businessman. He was just another man living in a big city, but God knew what kind of a heart was in this man. And that's why God chooses him. So if you're sitting here going, I don't know if God could use me. God is not looking for great people. God takes average people and does great things through them. That's what you learn about the story. In fact, in Abram's life, the only time Abraham was something. I mean, we look back at oh, Father Abraham, father of the Jews and the Muslims. And I promise you, in Abraham's lifetime... The only time Abraham was anything was when he was in Ur. Once he left to follow God, he became nothing. He's rich. He's wealthy. He's on social security. He's living large in Iraq. Things are good. And God said, get up and go. And he will spend the rest of his life in warfare with other tribes. And he will die in a tent out in the desert. He leaves his beautiful house... And he will die in a tent doing what? Following God. 
and believing in the dream that God laid out for him. What did God say? He said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Take a look at the political landscape today. 4,000 years later, people who bless Israel, their nations are doing well. When a, when a nation curses Israel, things do not go well. It's, it's a promise in black and white right there. But the last phrase, he says, Abraham... All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through you. What's he talking about? The Messiah's coming. See, he knows enough. Abraham knows enough from his past. There's been enough passed down from Adam, from Noah, from his grandfather, that he knows about this idea of a Savior coming. And he says, all the world's going to get blessed through you. Now, there's some problems. Abraham doesn't have any children. Abraham's 75 years old, his wife's 65, and his, Sarah's barren. She's been barren her whole life. And there's a problem. There's another problem. When he gets to the land of Israel, the Canaanites are there, and they've been there for 500 years, 1,000 years. And he's like, okay, two problems, God. The land's full, and I don't have any kids. All right? And God takes him outside. We'll get to all this in the next few weeks. God takes him outside at night and says, look up at the stars. He said, Abraham, if you can number the stars, you'll have an idea of how many descendants you're going to have. In fact, the name Abram, check this out. The name Abram, Abram means exalted father. So can you imagine his whole life? His whole life, he's lived with this name. People were no different 4,000 years ago than they are now. The poor guy would have been mocked his whole life. Hey, big daddy. Hey, exalted father. I got 16 sons. How many you got? All his life, he would have heard that. God changes his name to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Just for the record today, about, I don't know, 30, 40 nations in the world are directly descended from the line of Abraham. Everybody, all the Israelis, all of the Arabs, they're all direct descendants of Abraham through either Isaac or Ishmael, his two, his two boys. Okay, But Abraham doesn't know any of that yet. Now I want you to think about this. So God makes a promise to you. That you're going to have a child, but literally, Abraham, you're too young. You're only 75. We've got to wait till you're 100. Now, I know it was tough for Abraham, but I know us. God, you promised me on Tuesday, and it's already Wednesday. None of us are good at this, are we? But see, Abraham dared... To trust God. In fact, Abraham is all over the New Testament. Galatians, Romans, Hebrews. And it says, because of Abraham's faith, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. According to what? His faith. He dared to believe that God could do the impossible. You see, if you're not there, you don't understand. And I'm going to tell you, the reason most Christians fail, the reason most churches fail, because there is, there's, there's a voice in your head, and there's always this voice in a board meeting. I don't care what kind of a church it is. There's always a voice that says, hey, we got to have faith, but we got to be practical here. And I fought that for years, and then I learned a better line. Show me that in the Bible. We're told everywhere in the Bible to live by faith. Yes? 
Does anywhere in the Bible say to be practical? Was it practical for Abraham to leave Ur? No. He had it made. Was it practical for Peter to walk on the water? Was it practical for Jesus to step out of heaven and leave eternal glory and come down to this mess to die for us? No, it wasn't practical. But when you read Hebrews 11, every act of faith goes against what anybody with practical thoughts would have. And yet that's our line. And I'm telling you, churches are closed by the thousands because some brilliant person said, we need to be practical here, not faithful. I don't know what God's calling you to do. But I think it's fascinating that Abraham packed up everything and walked away. Because he believed there was something bigger and better and there was something far more important than his house and his land and whatever else he had there in Ur that God had something much bigger for him. And listen, the reason most Christians don't make it is because once you kick into that, okay, we got to be practical mode. Let me tell you what happens. You get bored. And when you get bored, eventually you'll just quit. That church just not what it ought to be. And I know that as a pastor because I get bored. Why do you think we keep things going all the time? We're always adding and changing because we don't want you to get bored. We want everybody to get plugged into ministry. We want everybody serving, everybody in a Bible study. Because when you're engaged in the kingdom and you're living by faith, you're not going to get bored. You don't have time to get bored. You won't even have time to complain about my jokes. I... uh I do have to tell you, I've, I've been against uh, organ transplants my whole life, but recently I, I had a change of heart. <laughs> now watch this. Maybe some of you need a change of heart. This is actually Ezekiel's words. Ezekiel said, Lord, give me a new heart. Give me a heart that doesn't think practically but thinks faithfully. That's a huge transition. See, James wrote it this way. This is Jesus' half-brother. He said, you believe that there's one God? That's good. See, every Jew believed there was one God. James is speaking to the Jewish people. He said, even the demons believe that. At least they shudder. At least the demons are scared. We live in a generation, if you watched, I didn't, but if you watched whatever it was, Oscars, Whiskers, whatever they have out in, in Hollywood, um, the whole thing was really a, a testimony to Satan. The entire, the entire program. Absolutely insane, the stuff that was, that was going on there. But that's the, the world, and that's what we can expect in the world. But you and I are called to walk by faith. And listen, it's not enough to say, yes, I believe there's a God. All right, did Jesus raise from the dead? If he did, then you've got to accept Jesus. You repent of your sins. You be baptized. You commit to following him. You get involved. You walk away from some of that old stuff in your life. But it's got to start with you, and nobody can make that decision but you. Now, people, again, that struggle with the word of God, I just want to show you a little something here, okay? The, uh, the promise that God made in Deuteronomy 11 says this. He says, every place that you set your foot will be yours. This is God speaking to Israel. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Western Sea. Huge block of land that is Israel today. All right, and a whole lot more. But um, he said, this will all be yours. Everywhere you put what? 
the sole of your foot. Okay, let me show you how literally they took this. When the Israelites would camp, and we still have their camps, camp outlines from 3,500 years ago. It's desert. All right, here's an example of one of them, okay? You can, you can see this is, so they were told where to camp by God. The Ark of the Covenant sits here in the middle, and I want you to see the outline. Do you see what it is? Can you see it? I know it's hard to see. I need a bigger screen. It's a shoe. Every time Israel built a new camp, they built their camp in the shape of a shoe. To claim that verse that God said, everywhere we put the sole of our foot, God will give us that land. You want to know how literally they took the word of God? You want to know why I believe it's the inerrant word of God? Why I believe every word in it's true? Why we don't compromise on any of these texts? Listen, I've got a, a friend right now, I can't go into details, and I got, actually I have several friends right now. that are about to lose their ministries because they're being forced by their denominations to do homosexual weddings and homosexual ordinations and all kinds of other stuff. And they're just like, we're not doing it. It goes against scripture and we can't do that. And you need to come along beside those people. You need to be praying for them, encouraging them. We may have to support some of them uh, as they're in their transitions because they've got the courage to stand up because they've decided, Acts 5.29, they've decided that they've got to listen to God rather than men. See, nothing has really changed. And you and I have got to decide, am I going to obey God or am I going to obey man? Because I can't do both. So either I want to make God happy or I want to make man happy. Yeah. Now here's what's interesting. We'll go back to Jesus in John chapter 8. This is verse 56. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders and they love Abraham. Remember, Abraham's their hero. And Jesus says this to them. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So the message is, you guys claim to love Abraham, but Abraham loved me and you hate me. Abraham was telling you I was coming. Abraham's whole message was that the Messiah was going to come, that you should be looking for me, and God gave Abraham a glimpse into what it was going to look like 2,000 years later when Jesus came. Now, you and I have the benefit of looking back on all 4,000 years. And we see this whole thing unfold. So Abraham was chosen because he was a nobody, but he had faith. He was a nobody, but he was obedient. See, it wasn't enough for him to say, yes, I believe. He had to leave. God said, I need you to get up and leave. Now, I don't know what obedience is for you. Just pay attention. I'll throw out a few ideas. Obedience might mean walking away from an addiction. Obedience might be walking back into a marriage and fixing a marriage. Obedience might be getting rid of that practical stuff in your head and say, I'm going to live boldly by faith. I don't know what obedience looks like for you. For Abraham, it was Abraham, you got to go. You're going to have to go. If you, if you want to be a part of my plan, you're going to have to get out of Babylon and you're going to have to trust me to do the impossible. But, but, but wait, God, I, I don't have any sons. He says that. He said, I only got one distant cousin. God said, I know. But God was not worried, was he? 
And we'll watch God unfold these miracles one after the other as we move through the rest of the book of Genesis. Francis Chan, great preacher in California, now he's in Southeast Asia. He wrote these words. He said, I quickly found out that the American church is a difficult place to fit in if you want to live out New Testament Christianity. The goals of American Christianity are often a nice marriage, children who don't swear, and a good church attendance. Taking the words of Christ literally and seriously is rarely considered. That's for the radicals who are unbalanced and who go overboard. Most of us want a balanced life that we can control, that's safe, and that does not involve suffering. Pretty good words. Pretty good words. So the disciples, back to Acts 5, see they were arrested and they were beaten for preaching. And they said, look, we'll let you go if you quit talking about Jesus. And they said, well, you keep us in jail or you can let us go. But we've got to decide between obeying God and obeying men. And for us, that's a no-brainer. We're going to follow God. But then the last part that really gets me, all right? And this is why we've loaded a couple really powerful songs at the end for you to worship. Is that Abram stops in the middle of the desert. And if you've not been to the Negev desert, no, it's not as big as the Sahara. But if you're ever in the middle of a desert, a desert's a desert, okay? When you look to the left, right, north, south, and everything you see sand for hundreds of miles, it's all the same. You're in a desert. And that's where he ends up, all the way down south in a city called Hebron. And he pitches his tent there, and he digs a well, and that's where Abram's going to live. But he stops and he builds an altar to worship God. Not, not to worship the moon or the stars, and not to give credit to anybody else, but he takes time to build the altar and to worship. Now, worship takes a lot of forms. Worship is singing. Worship is clapping, worship is raising your hands in surrender, worship is kneeling, worship is laughing, worship is crying. But the one thing worship always is, is participation. You can come to church and never worship. You watched a lot of people worship, you heard worship, but you weren't a part of it. You're only a part of it if you participate. And I, I don't care how you participate, but you need to participate. That's what worship is. And the more you worship, the stronger your faith is going to get. Now, again, I don't care how you do it. I, I remember, you know, one elder, he, he said, he told me, he said, that song was so exciting, I was tapping my toe inside my shoe. He said, I was just about to come unglued. And you know what? For some people, I get that. I get that. It, I'm not telling you how to worship. I'm just telling you the to worship is participatory. But here's what's powerful about this. This altar that Abraham builds, his son Isaac will come back years later and worship at that same altar. His grandson Jacob, he'll come by. He'll stop and worship at that altar. His great-grandson Joseph will go out of his way to go to that altar to worship God. Because it was a statement through the ages that my daddy worshipped the living God. And that's what you and I, that's the example we want to leave for our kids. That's the model we want for our grandkids to show them that God is the priority in my life and I worship him. And when we have the Lord's Supper, that is the same thing. It's all, let me tell you what worship is. Worship is an acknowledgement that he is God and you are not. 
You say, well, I never said I was. No, none of us say we do. We just act like it. But worship is the ultimate picture of when I say, whether I'm singing, kneeling, laughing, crying, taking the Lord's Supper, clapping, whatever I'm doing, it is me saying, God, you are so much bigger than me. And I am giving my life to you. That's what Abram has to do. He's believing a promise that one day you're going to be the father of many nations. And you and I are believing a promise that what Jesus did, one day we're all going to be with him in eternity. Teddy Roosevelt said this. Love Teddy. Um, Teddy Roosevelt said, each time we face our fear, we gain strength, courage, confidence in the doing. Remember the first time you prayed? Scary stuff, right? How about the first time you prayed out loud? Terrifying. How about the 10,000th time I walked out on this stage? Frightening, frightening, still frightening every time I walk out here. Should be. I'm not afraid of you. I'm representing God. I'm terrified. That's, the, that's where we should be. But the more we worship, the more we serve, the more we live by faith, the more comfortable we get with this incredible God who loved us enough to send his son. If you need to make a decision, you hit that button. I've decided if you're here in the room, come down front. There'll be people to help you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, to pray with you, to answer questions, whatever you might have. But we're going to worship now. We're going to worship through the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to finish with two songs. And you worship. All right. However you participate, you do that. But the bread that we're about to eat says, God, you're bigger than me. You're God, I'm not. You died for me. Nothing to do with me. I was a nobody. I still am a nobody who has faith. I'm a nobody who's trying to have obedience. And I'm a nobody who's come to worship. When you take that cup, God, I'm a nobody. But I believe the blood that you shed on the cross brings forgiveness to my soul. So, Father, as we have communion, we give you praise. We thank you that you have called us as clearly as you've called Abraham to live by faith, to be obedient and to worship. So, God, I don't know who needs what in this room. I just ask that your Holy Spirit would bring it to work. Those watching online today or in the future that you will connect with their hearts. Thank you for the model that Abram was for us. But Jesus, more importantly, thank you that he pointed us to you. That we got to run into the Savior of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.